A bright, attractive young woman. A car found engulfed in flames. A body charred beyond visual identification. Seemingly unanswerable questions that stir speculations of murder most foul. Welcome to the Skellicast and the story of the death of Lucille Elaine DeVries. One of nine children who grew up on the family farm a few miles outside of the town of Thornton, Iowa, Lucille Elaine DeVries, known as Lucy to her friends and family, was regarded by most who knew her as a tomboy. After graduating high school, she attended a professional school in Omaha, Nebraska, before moving to Mason City, Iowa, where she found employment with an insurance outfit, the Iowa Company. Miss DeVries, age 22, also worked part-time as a waitress at the Frontier Club and Ballroom. After her shift ended at 01.30 on Wednesday, October 10, 1962, she visited the Wheel Inn Cafe and dined alone. According to witnesses, she departed the restaurant around 02.45. Witnesses reported last seeing her car in the driveway of her residence, not on fire, around 20 to 30 minutes before the fire was reported. Judy Sisko, who shared the home with Miss DeVries, told officers that she awoke shortly after 4 a.m. and smelled smoke. She said she saw Mr. Vries' fiery car parked outside in the drive beside their 607 3rd Street Northeast residence and called for assistance. The dispatchers received no fewer than three calls in rapid succession reporting the fire, with the first call coming at 0412 a.m. Miss Sisko placed one of these calls, at which time the car was burning completely and vigorously. When firemen arrived, the entire passenger compartment was roaring with fire. Heat had shattered the closed car windows and caused the metal car roof to sag. Firefighters were apparently unaware that the car may be occupied until Miss Sisko frantically informed them that her roommate was not at home and that this was her vehicle. Once the fire was extinguished, the interior was gutted except for a portion of the back seat where a body shielded the fabric and padding from the onslaught of the conflagration. Other portions of the interior were either melted or burned away. Chief Boyd Arnold of the Mason City Fire Department, the Mason City Police Department, and Dr. J.E. Christopherson, the county medical director, conducted the initial investigation. They then called in the state fire marshals to assist with determining how the fire started. The car, per media reports, was parked in a drive only a few feet from the house and the soaring flames scorched the edge of the porch roof. This is not unusual fires involving vehicles in such close association to a building. You actually don't have to have direct flame contact for this to happen because radiated heat will raise the temperature of surrounding structures and materials until they themselves ignite. Reporters repeatedly stated that there were questions as to how the fire started, as well as why Miss DeVries' remains were found in the back seat of the vehicle. An autopsy was performed the next day, although unfortunately due to privacy regulations in Iowa, the report is not available for me to review directly. What follows is derived from newspaper reports and other sources. Blood test results from the autopsy indicated that Miss DeVries was not intoxicated at the time of her death, and there was nothing to indicate why she would be disoriented and would have climbed into the back seat rather than entering her home or at least exiting the vehicle when the fire started. She had no steady boyfriend and no known enemies. Investigators interviewed more than 100 individuals in her death. And in 1963, February 1963 to be specific, the fire chief concluded they'd found no evidence contradicting Christofferson's conclusions from the autopsy report. The February 16, 1963 story that was published in the Globe Gazette, the local newspaper, also cited the following findings. There was no evidence of a concussion or other brain injury. DeVries had not suffered any skull fractures or broken bones. There were no indications of her having been choked or smothered, but the investigators could not definitively rule out foul play. However, what is often not mentioned in the discussions of the news reports of this case is the sentence from the very same article that states, In fact, nothing in Miss DeVries' physical condition hints at any foul play motive. End quote. In the autopsy protocol, Dr. Christofferson ruled that the cause of death was burn injuries. This is usually reported in blogs with the added caveat, quote, but didn't determine whether DeVries was already dead before the fire was set. Think about that for a second. And then, pardon my language, but what in the absolute fuck? This is this makes absolutely no sense. Plus, it was dispelled in the very article 
most authors seek out to get their information about the lack of a traumatic injury other than the burns. The precise verbiage is as follows, quote, the examination of the body did show that the young woman was alive and breathing in a fire situation, end quote. Though the unfortunate Miss DeVries had suffered some smoke inhalation, Dr. Christofferson said that she had an insufficient carbon monoxide exposure for that to have caused her death alone, the Globe Gazette reported on October 11, 1962. The death, therefore, was the result of shock from the burns and the depletion of oxygen in the car by the consumption of the uh, gas by the actions of the fire. This is not at all uncommon in vehicle fires and even house fires. Officials initially ruled DeVries' death as accidental, but were dogged by these unanswered questions about how the fire started, mainly by people who don't understand what the term accidental means. The Iowa Cold Cases website, the Dark Side of America website, etc. It seems likely that this continuing persistent belief that this is a criminal act is driven by persons other than the investigators, most likely the victim's siblings, who continue to insist that there was foul play. Quote, I never thought for one minute that it was anything but foul play, says Alvina Muhlenbrook, uh, Lucy's older sister. It wasn't an accident, end quote. Similarly, it appears that a roommate believes in the existence of some unknown perpetrator. Some 47 years after the fire, when the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, the DCI, established a cold case unit in 2009, uh, DeVries' unsolved quote-unquote murder was reportedly one of 150 cases listed on the cold case unit's website, quote, as those that the DCI hoped to solve using the latest advancements in DNA technology, end quote. And that's a quote taken from the Iowa Cold Cases blog. The DCI website page in question is no longer available, and given that there's no evidence that DNA would have any impact on this, no evidence of sexual assault, and the fire would have destroyed any evidence, for example, under her fingernails, I'm not sure why the author of the blog would assume this would have been beneficial, let alone professional investigators. I've contacted DCI to inquire if they actually reviewed this case and why they did so in light of the accidental death ruling, and if the ruling of accidental death has been amended, but at the time of my recording this episode, I've not heard back. They never really came out and said it was a homicide, but there's obviously some things that were troubling about it, end quote, according to Lieutenant Rich Jensen of the Mason City Police Department. On close scrutiny, however, these all in the light of modern forensic science, rapidly become mundane and cease to nag at a conscientious investigator. So what are these things that people have found unusual? Uh, first of all, is damage to the car. Some have pointed towards the fact that the body was noted to be protecting the seat. There's nothing unusual here. We often see this in car fires, uh, in house fires where a body is on furniture or a bed, or even fires following plane crashes. The presence of the body, or any other flame-resistant object for that matter, simply prevents or hinders the fire from directly accessing the surface and the underside of the object, or in this case, the body. It also reduces the amount of oxygen that any fire that does get to these areas has ready access to, which means the fire is going to burn less intensely. We actually often find unburnt skin on these areas, which helps to determine the ethnic origin and complexion of the victim. Others have pointed out that the windows uh, shattered or, quote, blew out of the car. This is once again normal for car fires and even house fires. Glass, as it heats up, it becomes more and more brittle, and eventually it will shatter under its own tension, basically. You can also get an effect from the fire attempting to establish its own ventilation to draw in fresh air and expel hot gases that this can put some pressure on windows and cause them to shatter. Another option is, is that the windows can blow out if they are suddenly and abruptly forced to change temperature, such as if water is applied. If you spray cold water or even relatively warm water on a very hot piece of glass, it's going to shatter. 
the fact that the roof was noted to be sagging uh, has been used by some to indicate that there must have been an accelerant used. First of all, this does not imply the use of an accelerant. Most metals used in cars, such as steel, lose much of their strength at relatively low temperatures. They will then begin to sag under their own weight. You don't have to melt metal to cause it to sag. This is the jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams argument uh, from the 9-11 conspiracy bullshit. Why was the victim found in the back seat? Well, she was a known smoker, so a logical supposition is that she was smoking and reached into the back seat to get something, dropped her cigarette, and then attempted to lean into the back seat to recover it or to fight the fire before becoming overwhelmed by the uh, smoke or the heat or the lack of oxygen produced by a fire burning in an enclosed environment. The rapidity with which a fire from a cigarette can spread will depend on the fuel source. If you have non-flame retardant upholstered carpeting, non-fire rated padding, or things like papers on the floorboard, a reasonably tightly closed up car can become a lethal environment in terms of smoke and heat in less than a minute. Never, ever try to extinguish a fire in the interior of a car from inside the vehicle. Several folks have questioned the speed with which this fire progressed, and it's worth pointing out that no external accelerants were found, and the speed of progression was not actually that unusual for a car fire that starts in the interior. How long it takes for a car to burn will largely depend on where the fire starts and what area is impinged uh, by the flame. The firefighters that fought this fire thought the fire spread with unusual rapidity. However, most car fires start in the engine compartment, so they're likely judging this based on a fire that would start in the engine compartment or from the underside of the vehicle, such as the catalytic converter. It's not uncommon for a car to burn completely in 15 to 20 minutes, but I've seen an engine compartment fire spread to the passenger compartment with it fully involved and uninhabitable in under five minutes. Um, we're not going to go into any details as to that specific case, but... Uh, let's just say that it still gives me nightmares that that call um, going on 20 years after the fact another thing that would have helped to speed this fire along was the fact that there was a six or seven knot wind at the time of the fire based on looking at weather reports that are still available at this point we're back kind of full circle to the words of the next of kin I never thought for one minute there was anything but foul play, said Alvina Muhlenbrook, Lucy's older sister. It wasn't an accident, end quote. Sadly, these are the words of someone whose grief has led to a lapse in critical judgment. It's more palatable for some to have the open-ended question of, quote-unquote, who done it, than to concede that a loved one fell prey to a mistake or the vagaries of chance. This is an accidental fire, and therefore this was an accidental death. I'm puzzled as to why some persons continue to refer to this as a crime or a homicide. With no shortage of actual crimes to examine and report on, we have no need to manufacture or fabricate the existence of additional heinous acts. Nor should we blindly and blithely go along with the machinations of a family convinced of foul play in the absence of anything more tangible than the ability to grasp a handful of smoke. As unpleasant as it is for us to have to say such things to families, and recalcitrant as they must be, we, 
forensics personnel, investigators, the true crime community, and the media alike have to stand firm and base our conclusions and our approaches to cases on evidence. Otherwise, we're not dealing with the truth and therefore would not have a claim rightfully to the true crime label because we are then striding into a fictive realm and not proceeding factually. Even if no one else will say it, I will. This was unequivocally not a crime. It was an accident, and the police, media, and true crime community are doing a disservice both to Miss DeVries' memory and to her family and friends by continuing to give them a voice with which to spread what amounts to disinformation in the absence of any evidence of foul play. Labeling this as a homicide, such as what Iowa Cold Cases blog does to this day, is not grounded in fact, it's not grounded in rational thinking, and it's not a credible conclusion. It's relying on minds addled by grief and misconception. I ask most respectfully that further coverage be guided by something other than mistaken conclusions of a grieving family. Let our discussions be guided by the light of science, the gift of reason, and by, most of all, the evidence. Thank you.